When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Julia F. Irwin about her new release, Catastrophic Diplomacy, U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance in the American Century, out of the University of North Carolina Press. Welcome to the network, Julia. Thanks very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation, Nathan. What is your academic background? I see that you attended Yale, and where are you now? Uh, Yes, so I attended, well, I I started, um, I went to Oberlin College, graduated there in 2004, and then uh, earned my PhD from Yale in uh, both history and the history of medicine and science. Um, And from there, I graduated in 2009 and then uh, got a job teaching at the University of South Florida, uh, where I taught from 2010 to 2013. Uh, Just this year, though, I moved to Louisiana State University, where I am now teaching as a professor. And Catastrophic Diplomacy, is this your first or second writing book? Um, And how does it relate to your past or future research? Yeah, so this is my this is my second monograph, uh, Catastrophic Diplomacy. So my first book was called Making the World Safe, uh, the American Red Cross and the Nation's Humanitarian Awakening. Um, that book was you know, my, my doctoral dissertation that, that got revised into my first book. Um, and in that book, I studied the history of um, U.S. humanitarian aid during the First World War era. Um, so that book was mostly focused on war and wartime. Uh, but in writing it, I became really interested. Um, I kept seeing sort of in the archives and my records um, examples of U.S. responses to to disasters caused by earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, floods, sort of other other natural hazards. Um, so when I finished that book, it came out in 2013, um, I started turning my attention to disaster studies and became kind of interested in the, the politics of uh, these, these peacetime humanitarian operations. So that's where catastrophic diplomacy uh, began, was, was kind of the, the what, what was left on the cutting room floor of my first book, I think. Can you provide a brief overview for the New Books Network of the main themes and arguments presented in Catastrophic Diplomacy? Uh, yes. So in this book, I'm, uh, I'm examining the, the history and really the politics and the diplomacy of U.S. foreign disaster assistance. So this is American disaster aid to other nations and other empires um, throughout uh, much of the 20th century. Uh, the book starts in the early 20th century, 
uh, and kind of winds its way through uh, the mid 20th century up to the 60s and into the early 70s, where where I really stop. Um, in the book, I'm, I'm interested in a few different themes. Um, one of them is is kind of looking at a, a much longer history of U.S. governmental involvement in foreign aid. Um, a lot of the focus is on both the government, especially the U.S. State Department and various diplomats and consuls, uh, as well as the U.S. military uh, and the role that they have long played in U.S. humanitarian assistance um, earlier than we than we often imagine. Um, I'm almost so interested just in in the ways that that natural hazards and events, so things like earthquakes, uh, hurricanes, um, flash floods, have have shaped the histories of U.S. foreign relations in ways that we don't always think about or, or see um, in, in different regions, different parts of the world. Uh, so this is kind of um, a lot of the book is kind of thinking about how these these sudden events and the emergency responses to them. Uh, have have affected U.S. diplomacy and foreign relations with different countries and different regions uh, in different uh, in different moments throughout time. What motivated you to explore the topic of U.S. foreign disaster assistance throughout the so-called American century? Yeah. So I, again, as I as I said earlier, you know, my first book, I, I kept seeing all of these examples, and I wrote a little bit about a few of these disasters um, in my first book. But I was very interested in how, how these events that we, we often think about as um, kind of uh, unpredictable emergencies or catastrophes, uh, you know, how they draw in um, U.S. policymakers and, and um, what, are, what are the kind of political implications of these responses. Um, so I had found this sort of in the archives for the early 20th century when I was writing my first book, uh, and I wanted to know more. I wanted to know how... Uh, how disasters over time have uh, informed and influenced uh, U.S. relations with other places. Um, I wanted to know more about the the role that the environment plays uh, in in shaping U.S. foreign policy. Uh, certainly, today in the 21st century, we are um, witnessing the the effects of, of climate change and the disasters that it is contributing to. Uh, so, I wanted to know about the longer history of um, you know of climate caused disasters as well as other, um, you know, other disasters uh, and think about how they had um, played a role in U.S. foreign relations before, uh, you know, before climate change became the sort of issue that it is uh, certainly today in the 21st century. What was your research process like for this book? And were there any challenges in accessing historical data or sources? Uh, that's a great question. So, um, you know, I started I started this project and uh, I tried to cast a really wide net. I wasn't sure exactly where I wanted to uh, finish the book, start the book. So I, I did a lot of research kind of starting in the 19th century and really going up all the way to the end of the Cold War. Um, it took me to the National Archives in the U.S., uh, as well as I think I think I've been to now 12 different presidential libraries, maybe 13. <laughs> I lost count. Um, but then also international records. Uh, I spent a lot of time in uh, Geneva uh, researching in the records of the uh, what, what was called the League of Red Cross Societies. Uh, it's the branch of the Red Cross Societies, that um, uh, the International Red Cross Movement that deals with disasters and sort of peacetime crises. Um, other archives, including uh, the, the Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome, um, which is a UN agency, um, the, the British National Archives um, outside of London. Um, so kind of trying to get perspectives that weren't just from the United States itself. Um, 
this is a project that that looks at the U.S. responding to disasters in all parts of the world. Um, you know, um, in essentially on every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, so some of the challenges, right, are you know how do you tell this kind of broad international global history? Um, you know, that it was impossible essentially to to go to all of the places that I you know, that I was researching, telling the stories about. So part of the ways that I tried to tell those stories were through the records of international organizations like the League of Red Cross Societies, um, which which um, you know, give uh, perspectives from from different national organizations uh, and, and people uh, who were the recipients of USAID, trying to get kind of their perspectives and ideas as well. So that was certainly one of the challenges. Um, uh, one of the uh, benefits of, of writing about disasters um, was kind of finding fortuitously in the U.S. National Archives, um, the ways that uh, diplomats had kind of classified these these events um, made them fairly easy to find. There's actually a decimal number that they use to to categorize disasters, which I discovered thanks to some very helpful archivist uh, about a decade ago. Um, but it was it made it possible for me to kind of go in and and uh, pinpoint, um, you know, knowing when when specific disasters happen, I could just call the records related to it. So that was a really uh, a, a lucky finding, um, uh, was, was thanks to archival organization made it possible to find a lot of records more easily than I might have. Are there specific historical events that prompted the need for a comprehensive examination of U.S. foreign disaster assistance? Um. You know, this this book started. Um, it, it it took a while to to work <laughs> to to finish to write. Um, but when I was finishing my uh, dissertation and kind of beginning, when I was on the job market the first time in two thousand ten, um, in early two thousand ten uh, was the Haitian earthquake, the major earthquake that struck Haiti in in January two thousand ten. Um, and that event, I remember at the time being really uh, struck by it, and and kind of that was another kind of a current event at. at at the time, at least, uh, that did make me interested in the longer history of this, especially as it unfolded. Uh, we often think of disasters as something that happened in an instant um, and then are, are over. Uh, but certainly the U.S. response um, was years in the making. It followed relief, recovery, reconstruction efforts, um, but then also the, the ways, you know, the, the roles that, that uh, uh, corporations and, and various philanthropies and charities played in, in, in you know, intervening in Haiti. Um, so kind of watching that unfold uh, made me interested in, in the, the historical precursors to this, you know, how, how, um, how comparable was this to what had happened in the 20th century, um, what was new, what was different. Um, so that was, that was one event that made me very interested. Uh, shortly thereafter was the, the Fukushima disaster in Japan, uh, the, the tsunami, that, that, um, uh, the, the 311 tsunami that, that hit Japan. Uh, so different events like these kind of, as I was beginning the project, um, made me more and more interested in, um, you know, in this kind of international history of, of USAID and disaster response. How has the role of foreign disaster assistance evolved since the first years that you researched? Um, that's a great question. So as I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, um, one of the things that really struck me about this research um, was the role that the federal government has played and, and the military have played in disaster assistance really since the early 20th century and in some ways, in some places, um, even before that. Um, but over time, um, so, so part of the book is trying to call attention to the role that the government, the military, and then their partners 
uh, in the private sector or the voluntary sector play in disaster aid. Um, one of the things that shifts over time, though, is that the government um, in the early 20th century relied much more heavily on uh, especially the American Red Cross, uh, but other um, non-governmental voluntary organizations uh, as well uh, to conduct and um, uh, carry out a lot of aid operations, mostly on its behalf. They did so in cooperation with these groups um, and, and assisted them in a lot of ways. But most, much of the funding, uh, much of the sort of um, drive for all of this was coming th- through the American Red Cross and other agencies. Um, over time, that starts to shift. Uh, and really, especially as you get into the post-World War II period, um, the U.S. government starts to play more and more of a central role uh, in the uh, funding, the delivery, the distribution of, of disaster aid. Um, and so that's kind of one of the, the arcs, the narrative arcs that I'm tracing in the book is how and why the government starts to play a more official role rather than this sort of ad hoc um, informal role that it did early in the 20th century. So I think that's one of the most, uh, the most important, um, the most important ways that it does change is just how the U.S. government itself uh, and the military come to play a more central role. Um, the other thing that changes a lot is the the rise of international organizations uh, that are um, involved in disaster aid. So I mentioned already the Le- League of Red Cross Societies, uh, which is um, still in existence today. It's been renamed the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. Uh, but over time, especially since World War II, um, a lot of other international organizations uh, through UN agencies uh, so intergovernmental agencies, as well as interna- international non-governmental organizations, uh, have played more and more of a role in, in disaster aid globally. And that's really shaped the, the dynamics on the ground and then changed the, the ways, you know, changed who is being involved in disaster aid, uh, who is not, um, you know, who are the humanitarian actors. Has, has, the field has broadened quite a lot since the early 20th century. Can you discuss any instances where the provision of humanitarian aid directly influenced the larger diplomatic relations between the U.S. and other nations? Um, yes, <laughs> in many of the, the, the instances I talk about in the book, um, certainly we, we see at least a short-term uh, effect. Um, a lot of the, the ways that um, you know, there's this sort of short-term impact um, after disasters happen, after aid is carried out, there's a, there's a lot of... Um, uh, you know, sort of public displays of, of thanks from, from leaders and then the, the, the sort of the diplomacy associated with giving and receiving aid is, is this, um, it, it's, it's a very, it shapes um, diplomatic relations in ways that we often don't, you know, they're sort of, it's informal, uh, it's unacknowledged protocol, I suppose, is one way to think about it. Um, but in other cases, and I, I have a few case studies in the book that are more sort of in-depth and, and looking at, you know, specific disasters, um, uh, chapter-level studies. Uh, so one of the most important, I think, in the book was in 1923, there was a major earthquake in uh, Japan uh, that uh, devastated especially the, the cities of Yokohama and Tokyo. It's called the Great Kanto Earthquake. Um, But 1923 was this really interesting moment in U.S.-Japanese relations. Um, It's in the aftermath of World War I and a few years after the the Washington Naval Conference. Um, It's at a moment when U.S.-Japanese relations are not necessarily at a great place. Um, In large part, um, this is the period, too, when U.S. Congress is considering banning Japanese immigration to the United States. There's a lot of anti-Japanese sentiment within the U.S., 
Um, and so this, this earthquake comes in September 1923 in this, this really pivotal moment of, of U.S. Uh, in the history of U.S.-Japanese relations. Uh, and for a short time, as I talk about in the book, um, the, the sort of massive outpouring of U.S. aid does seem to have a positive effect on U.S. foreign relations or U.S. relations with Japan. Um, but that gives way fairly quickly as well. Um, it's part of the, the story that I tell in that chapter is that um, these, these efforts to cultivate goodwill are um, quickly undermined by, um, by you know, efforts to, again, to, to ban Japanese immigration to the United States and other sort of perceived um, uh, affronts uh, to, to Japanese uh, sovereignty and then sort of um, honor as well. Um, so it becomes this kind of moment, this is sort of um, the, the promises and limitations, I think, of, of disaster aid as diplomacy, uh, if we think about it in relation to, to what else is going on in U.S.-Japanese relations. Um, but there's other examples like that in the book. And um, I have a case study of U.S. aid to Italy in the early 20th century, for instance, um, that we, we see kind of similar uh, similar dynamics in terms of um, you know, relations between uh, the two countries and questions of immigration. All of this kind of plays a role uh, as well there. Um, but yeah, um, you know, reading the book, I think you'll, you'll see a lot of a lot of different places where um, you know, where disaster aid really does shape diplomacy, at least for um, for a short time, if not permanently. What governmental agencies or departments have played pivotal roles in shaping U.S. foreign disaster assistance policies, and how have these policies also evolved? That's yeah. So in the early 20th century, especially um, well, since the early 20th century, um, and honestly, honestly, since the 19th century, but especially since the early 20th century, the State Department uh, and the staff of U.S. diplomatic and consular missions uh, play a really major role in uh, deciding which disasters merit uh, a response. Um, there's a lot of kind of language, you know, is this in the U.S. national interest to provide aid? And if so, what types of aid should the U.S. government provide? Should the U.S. military provide? Uh, so the State Department and its its kind of agents on the ground play a really important role in, in making those decisions about whether to make offers of aid or not. Um, and this increases over time. So as early as the early 20th century, you see these kind of patterns emerging. Um, but especially after World War II, uh, the State Department is, is playing a kind of central role. Um, after World War II, you also start to see the formation of um, permanent U.S. foreign aid agencies. Uh, USAID uh, was created in 1961, and this is the organization that is still you know, in existence today. Um, but before USAID, there were several precursors throughout the 40s and 50s. Um, organizations like the Foreign Operations Administration, the International Cooperation Administration, these were both in the 1950s. Um, and they too played a really important role. Um, the, the, their, um, their development missions, for instance, the personnel of them uh, often became involved in disaster relief and recovery operations. Uh, so those sort of foreign assistance organizations play a, a pivotal role too. Um, and then finally, the U.S. military. Um, when I started this project, uh, the U.S. military today in the 21st century plays a major role in U.S. international disaster aid efforts. Um, and I didn't realize that this would have such a long history. Uh, I thought it would be a sort of later 20th century phenomenon or development. Uh, but in fact, as I started researching, I found the military all over the place. Um, often when U.S. troops or, or ships, uh, you know, sort of Navy uh, ships and sailors 
were stationed nearby when a disaster happened, they were dispatched to the scene to, to provide assistance. Uh, so as early as the, you know, the first decades of the 20th century, you start to see the military, uh, especially the Navy and the Marines, playing a major role in disaster relief operations. Uh, they're usually doing so at the State Department's request. Um, so it's kind of the, the State Department requests military assistance, and then the Departments of uh, War and the Navy, later the Departments of Defense, respond to those requests. Um, but you have these, these various branches of, of the U.S. government, uh, the State Department, the Foreign Service Organizations, excuse me, Foreign Assistance Organizations, and the military all involved pretty deeply uh, throughout the 20th century. In your view, are there particular turning points or milestones in your history of U.S. foreign disaster assistance that significantly impacted um, diplomatic strategies? Um, yeah, so one of the um, one of the, the the book I wrote is is divided into three parts, um, and it it the the parts kind of uh, break up between the first and second world war. So the first part is essentially the turn of the 20th century up through the eve of U.S. entry into the First World War in 1916. Uh, the second part is sort of from U.S. entry into the war in 1917 through the ends and the aftermath of World War II in 1947. Uh, and then the third part takes us up through the creation of USAID in 1961 and its aftermath into the 60s and 70s. Um, so I mentioned the wars because um, you know many many histories of U.S. foreign relations focus on war, and this is not a book about war. It's a book about um, about disasters. Uh, but one of the the things that I'm I'm arguing is that um, the ways that the U.S. state changed, so the the sort of expansion of the U.S. government, the expansion of the military uh, during both conflicts, uh, especially though during the Second World War, uh, really changed um, how the United States. Um, it's, it's, it's global footprint, it's uh, capabilities, it's reach. Um, these affects not only um, war making and, and diplomacy making, but uh, the United States role as a humanitarian power as well. So both wars are really important turning points, especially the Second World War for various reasons. Um, the creation of different aid agencies is, is also important. I kind of mentioned earlier USAID um, and its uh, precursors. Uh, at the end of the book, though, I also examine um, the creation in 1964 uh, of what came to be called the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. So before this time, the U.S. government had been providing all this aid, but it hadn't had a single sort of um, bureau or department that was devoted to providing aid. Um, so its creation in 1964 was a really important turning point in um, sort of formalizing the U.S. government's role in, in foreign disaster assistance. Um, I also look at um, uh, changes to the Foreign Assistance Act, the legislation that governs foreign assistance. Um, there's a major um, amendment added in 1975. Uh, for the first time, international disaster assistance is added as a specific category to the Foreign Assistance Act. So this, this um, marks a really major turning point as well. Um, going back in time, the book begins in the early 20th century uh, because it's really in this period, especially during uh, Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, that all of a sudden the U.S. government starts to provide aid to all of these disasters in other places. Um, there were sort of moments in the 19th century, um, sort of here and there, uh, where the government provided at least little bits of aid uh, to other nations hit by disaster. Um, but it really is in the early 20th century, the first decades of the 20th century, that you start to see this becoming a common and really routine element 
of U.S. foreign relations. So um, I, starting there at the kind of dawn of the 20th century is, is um, I guess, the, the first turning point of the book uh, and then the others that follow. Can you share examples from the book that illustrate the challenges the United States has had or faced in implementing some of their foreign disaster aid? Um, yeah, so, you know, some of the... I'm trying to think of sort of specific examples. Some of the, the challenges, I think, are that disasters, as, as much as you try to plan for them, are in a lot of ways unplannable. <laughs> um, they're these, these contingent events. You might know that a, a place is at risk for an earthquake or a hurricane, um, but no one really knows exactly when that will happen, at what date it will, will strike. Um, and so this, this sort of contingent nature of, of these events, I think, makes them... Um, both, you know, really challenging for for U.S. foreign policymakers to kind of figure out how to plan for. Um, so this is a sort of overarching uh, theme. And as you get into the late 50s and early 60s, there's a lot more effort in, in trying to plan for the unplannable or trying to um, you know, plan for these, these um, contingent events. Uh, so I think that that's one of the ways that um, you sort of see this playing out. Um, but on the ground, in a lot of, in a lot of cases, um, you have diplomats and, and sort of foreign aid organizations uh, who have, have asked or requested uh, certain types of aid, and all of a sudden it's, it's you know, too much or too little of, of one kind. Uh, in some cases, they found that they had more money than they knew what to do with, um, which, which it's a pretty, you know, it's not the worst problem to have, um, but it led them to try to figure out, well, what can we do with this extra money? And sometimes they took on these sort of um, interesting experimental programs. Uh, in the case of Italy, for example, in the early 20th century, uh, they had far more donations than they could imagine. They ended up uh, building things like an orphanage, uh, a hotel, um, in an order to kind of uh, spur tourism again. And so these really kind of interesting moments of, of trying to figure out what to do with, with, with this excess funding. Uh, in a lot of cases, uh, probably most cases, uh, there's not enough funding to to um, to you know to really resolve uh, the issues that are are at hand. Uh, so there's also a kind of a lot of debates about where you know where should aid go, who should be assisted, um, how do you kind of um, uh, who should be prioritized uh, in the provision and distribution of aid. So these these are um, cases like that too, and and quite a lot of, of disaster scenarios. Are there key figures or individuals who you want to mention here for the New Books Network um, who left a lasting mark on the trajectory of U.S. foreign disaster assistance? Um, it's funny researching, you know, researching a book like this, uh, you you come across a lot of people who you get to know very well through their archives and who probably most people have never heard of. So in my book, uh, there, there are a few people. Uh, there was a man named Ernest Bicknell, who was a leader in the early 20th century. I actually wrote about him a lot in my first book. Um, he was a Red Cross, American Red Cross sort of director and official. Um, he was followed later by a man named Ernest Swift, who played a really major role in disaster aid. Uh, and another American Red Cross official named Sam Krakow, who's just all over the archives uh, for, for, you know, I think about 20 years. Uh, you start to feel like you get to know these people personally. You're reading so much of their writings and you know, seeing where they're going and then, you know, traveling the world. Um, so these sort of people who would otherwise um, not really enter the historical record really play this major role throughout the 20th century in shaping U.S. foreign disaster aid. 
Uh, the final one who had a little bit more of a made a little bit more of an impression, I guess, on, on the public uh, was a guy named Stephen Tripp. Uh, Stephen Tripp was the first uh, he was appointed the first um, uh, coordinator of U.S. foreign disaster assistance for the U.S. government in 1964. Um, he was sort of so well known at the time that Time magazine did a, a um, uh, a cover, uh, not a cover story, but a story on him, uh, as did Reader's Digest. They called him America's Mr. Catastrophe. Um, so Steve Tripp was this kind of interesting, interesting person. I was actually able to interview uh, his daughter and learn a little bit about his history, but he had been a Marine. He worked for the Interior Department, and then he was sort of appointed as the first person to coordinate U.S. disaster assistance. Uh, so I, I tell all of these guys' stories a little bit in, in uh, you know in different ways in the book, but they're they're interesting characters nonetheless. Um, the other in researching this book, I always uh, and I whenever I'm talking to other historians of humanitarianism, I'm always very interested in the role that Her- Herbert Hoover plays in, in disaster aid, and in this book, it's sort of no uh, no exception. Uh, Hoover's really involved in uh, shaping. Um, ideas about U.S. foreign disaster assistance from the First World War all the way through his presidency and then beyond. Uh, so uh, Herbert Hoover plays a, a surprisingly, um, you know, uh, uh, he, he occupies a lot of space in my book uh, in ways that if you told me, you know, 20 years ago that I'd write this much about Herbert Hoover, I would have been surprised. But uh, he keeps finding his way into the, the stuff I research. So. Are there any reviews um, that either critique your work um, and are there cases that have been met with resistance or criticism about foreign disaster assistance? I'm, I'm sure there will be reviews critiquing my work, but uh, since the book just came out, I haven't had to have too many of them. So, you know, tune back in later. Um, as for critiques of foreign disaster assistance itself, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm, I tell a critical story myself. I mean, I, I look for moments of both you know, I think writing about humanitarian aid is interesting because there's certainly a lot of positive moments to highlight, but also places to to critique, to criticize, to, to think about ways that we might do this better. Um, there's a long history of, um, uh, you know, of, uh, you know, there's 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 a lot to um, figure out ways that we can do humanitarian aid better, and I think studying history helps us think through that. Um, in terms of the book itself, though, you know, within my research. Um, there were a number of cases where the recipients of U.S. foreign aid um, themselves even became critics. Um, one case that I remember really that, that really struck me, and, and I write about it a bit in the book, in the 1930s, the early 1930s, uh, there was major flooding in, in China in 1931. Uh, and the U.S. government ended up selling surplus commodities to China um, at a kind of low fairly low cost um, as food aid. So this is one of, this becomes a very common way of providing disaster assistance and other humanitarian assistance later in the 20th century. Um, But this idea of selling surplus agricultural commodities to China um, as humanitarian aid, but also as a way to um, help U.S. farmers um, was was tested in this this moment in 1931. this provoked, though, a lot of um, uh, some backlash from from people who were affected. Um, there was this really um, poignant petition uh, by a group of farmers um, in in several kind of in several different Chinese provinces who wrote to the U.S. Um, ambassador and said, 
you know, this attempt to provide us aid, we, while we appreciate, you know, the gesture, um, what you've actually done is, is undermined our ability to recover our own agriculture. You've kind of flooded this area with food. We can't recover um, our, our own agriculture. We can't sell um, what we need to, to to recover ourselves. So these sort of unintended consequences of, 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 of U.S. giving um, without asking recipients what they need or want. Um, this is just one example, but you see this kind of pattern occurring in, in a lot of places. Um, as as you know, throughout the 20th century. So um, there are certainly critiques, and there are others as well. Um, there are critiques of U.S. foreign aid being um, simply a tool of propaganda and diplomacy. These are really deployed a lot of places, uh, and this, especially as the Cold War sets in. Um, there's a lot of debates about what, you know, is aid really genuine, or is it just simply, you know, a tool of public diplomacy uh, that, that you see kind of coming out from various corners Um uh, criticizing aid as well. So, um, yeah, I talk about a lot of these moments in the book too. So, In what ways does catastrophic diplomacy consider the global perception of U.S. foreign disaster assistance and how has that perception changed over time? Um, that's a good question. So, you know, I think it, the, the book itself doesn't look at a sort of, you know, a, a single global perspective, um, but sort of tells this, this international global story through a lot of different local perspectives. So I'm looking at case studies of a lot of different disasters and disaster responses in many different countries, many different regions. Um, so I think you get different voices of, of people. I've, I've mentioned Italy and, and Japan and China and Chile and so um, these and many other different countries as well. So I'm kind of giving, you know, giving the reader voices um, of people at different moments and in different regions who were shaped and affected by disaster. Um, in terms of kind of the, um, the, the role, you know, a, a sort of a global response, a sort of international response, there's, I think, less of that. Um, but it's, it's certainly something I'm, I'm interested in, how kind of international agencies and organizations um, uh, respond to, you know, to these operations. Uh, wherever possible, I try to kind of... Um, tried in the research to, to find voices and perspectives of, you know, of both the recipients of aid, but also kind of outside observers um, who, you know, so British officials, for instance, who were also involved in aid uh, operations. Uh, what were they saying about the Americans who were on the ground? Um, you know, uh, Swiss or um, other European uh, Red Cross leaders um, who were kind of watching the American Red Cross, what were they saying about the assistance that was given? Uh, and then, of course, what were aid recipients themselves kind of saying and, and how were they responding? So in all of these ways, I think we get sort of different snippets of, of how different people in, from different countries were, were thinking about USAID, but um, not a sort of singular, uh, holistic global uh, narrative, if that makes sense. Can you say the same thing about public opinion? Um, so do you mean like uh, American public opinion or, or what do you think? I mean, yeah. Yes. Okay. American. <laughs> yeah. So um, American public opinion um, is, is interesting. You know, I think uh, in a lot of cases, um, at least when the headlines are kind of calling attention to, to a disaster and sort of sudden destruction, um, disasters in a lot of ways tend to be, initially uh, to, to create less, um, there's, there's sort of more of a willingness and a bipartisan willingness almost to, to give uh, to, to sort of people who are perceived uh, for better or for, for worse as, as kind of worthy of, of, of assistance. Um, to, there's this kind of outpouring of aid that often follows uh, an immediate disaster. 
Um, but then that shifts in different ways as, as you start to see, you know, over time, like um, as, as the kind of immediate event passes, um, growing criticisms of, um, you know, too much aid from, from some corners, too little aid from other corners. Uh, we should be doing more to focus on domestic problems. So a lot of the things that you hear um, in response to debates over foreign assistance today in the 21st century uh, certainly rang out throughout the 20, 20th century as well. Um, these questions about, you know, what should, you know, where should American tax dollars be spent? Uh, how should they best be directed? Um, you know, is providing aid to survivors of international disasters in the interests of the United States? And this is a, a term that they often use. Is it in the U.S. national interests to provide international aid? Uh, and so all of this is really, you know, plays out in public opinion. Um, some of the most interesting research were that I, that I had were, um, people writing to the State Department or to various presidential administrations expressing their opinion. So Americans used to write lots of letters to their government officials um, expressing all sorts of opinions uh, about whether uh, whether the aid was, was good or was bad or was worthwhile or was too much or was not enough. Uh, so there were certainly, certainly a lot of those, uh, uh, those voices as well. What about the ethical considerations and dilemmas associated with providing foreign disaster assistance? Um, there are there are many of them. <laughs> so no, and I think, um, you know, I mentioned already that this the, the story about um, uh, providing, you know, surplus commodities and how sort of unintended consequences of, of undermining uh, local agriculture and flooding sort of markets with, with aid. Um, that's, I think, one of the examples. But you know, throughout the book, I'm I'm looking at a lot of individual actors um, on the ground, some of whom were certainly acting with the best of intentions, and um, and I think you know I, I would say doing real good, uh, and others who were not. Um, there were a lot of people involved in foreign aid who looked down on and sort of patronized or even you know, criticized the the recipients of their assistance. Um, certainly, there's a lot of um, racial animosity in a lot of cases as well. Um, that uh, certainly raises questions about, you know, what is, you know, how does humanitarian aid work and how does it kind of reflect American power? Um, so I think those are, those kind of go into to the, the you know, the ethical dilemmas uh, surrounding aid. Um, but I think, you know, at the most basic level, um, so much of this aid is kind of uh, imposed, and this is certainly throughout the 20th century, kind of decisions made in Washington about, um, you know, what is needed, uh, you know, whose interests are going to be served without really taking into account the needs, the desires, the, um, um, you know, the wants uh, the, uh, of people on the ground. Um, so I think a kind of a more ethical and efficacious foreign assistance um, takes those perspectives into account. And there are certainly examples of that as well um, throughout the book. But um, unfortunately, more of the story is about the, the kind of power dynamics involved. Are there examples, which I'm sure there are, but can you provide examples of collaboration or tensions with other nations specifically that you found in your research? Yeah. Um, so there's there's a couple I could talk about. One of the um, one of the most one of the earliest and kind of most uh, blatant examples of these um, in 1907 there was an earthquake in Kingston, Jamaica, uh, which was at that point a British colony. Um, the United States responded. They sent a, a couple of Navy ships um, with, with aid uh, to the region uh, from U.S. territories in Puerto Rico and Guantanamo. Uh, and they arrived, and basically due to some miscommunications, 
the um, the commander of these ships landed his um, landed American troops ashore in Jamaica, and they began taking part in aid efforts, but also in policing efforts. Um, essentially, the governor had not given his permission, um, and uh, it led to this enormous just diplomatic uh, kerfuffle. Uh, over all of this, it, it you know, led to several months of kind of uh, uh, efforts to to um, smooth this out um, between Washington and then um, uh, you know, the Roosevelt administration, their counterparts uh, in Great Britain. Um, and so this was an important example of kind of getting consent and permission before landing uh, troops in another country to provide aid. Um, throughout the Cold War era, though, uh, there's a lot more uh, examples of this. Um, in China, for instance, after 1949, the U.S. stopped providing disaster assistance uh, to China following the Chinese, uh, the Communist Revolution. Um, but there were moments where U.S. officials were considering uh, whether they could um, provide aid nonetheless, essentially as a, as a form of, of propaganda, public diplomacy. They talked about uh, flying over Chinese airspace without authorization and then landing aid um, uh, without permission. Uh, so this was certainly, um, this was decided against, but this kind of question about, you know, should humanitarian aid, um, you know, can it trump uh, a nation's sovereignty? Um, how should that, what, what role should that play um, was, was coming up there. Uh, there was a similar case in Cuba in 1963. Uh, there was a major hurricane that hit Cuba in 1963. Uh, and the U.S. government desperately wanted to provide aid to Cuba, essentially to show Cuban people um, that the United States cared about them. I mean, this was the, the, the language that the State Department, the National Security uh, Council were using. Um, and this is, of course, right after a couple of years after the Cuban Revolution. Uh, the Cuban Red Cross refuses American offers of aid, uh, essentially saying, you know, we, we find it hypocritical that you've been trying to uh, destroy our government for the past four years. And all of a sudden now you want to deliver humanitarian assistance. Uh, they go on to accept aid from other nations, including uh, the Soviet Union, but also other U.S. NATO allies. Um, but it's this really kind of moment of controversy over, you know, whether, you know, what are the purposes of aid? Why is the U.S so desperate to kind of give aid to these countries and then what happens when um, those countries refuse. So I think those um, raise some really interesting questions about the kind of politics and controversies surrounding uh, assistance. Okay. What about non-governmental organizations or NGOs and international partnerships in execution of U.S. foreign disaster assistance? Yeah. So they, they play a major role is the, the short answer. Um, one of the things that is, so the book focuses especially on the American Red Cross, um, because for the early, for the first half of the 20th century, and even well after the Second World War, uh, the American Red Cross was essentially the U.S. government's preferred partner in foreign disaster assistance. Um, historian, uh, historian Emily Rosenberg, many years ago, famously called the Red Cross a chosen instrument uh, of the U.S. government, but essentially this idea that the Red Cross uh, is the the humanitarian auxiliary of the U.S. government at a time when the government itself uh, doesn't have, uh, you know, sort of the infrastructure, the 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 agencies to to carry out foreign aid by itself. Um, so the American Red Cross plays this role. The American Red Cross, though, is not a totally non-governmental organization. It occupies this really interesting role uh, in. In U.S. governance, um, it is uh, the American Red Cross under both the Geneva Conventions um, as well as a congressional charter 
that it was granted in 1900 and then again in 1905, um, operates in this very different way from other uh, other you know sort of non-governmental organizations. It's probably better to call it, especially in the early 20th century, a quasi-governmental organization. Uh, the American Red Cross is headquarters um, initially, or in the early 20th century, uh, it was housed in the same building as the Department of the State War and Navy Department building. Uh, so basically, the Red Cross and its leaders were right down the hall from State Department officials, uh, Department of War officials, Department of Navy officials, uh, and they're really talking in very close communication. Uh, they have access to all sorts of government resources. Um, uh, the government sort of you know, negotiates uh, deals on the Red Cross's behalf with other governments. Um, so there's this really kind of interesting relationship uh, that they share um, that, that kind of makes it, you know, again, quasi-governmental rather than non-governmental. Um, but the Red Cross plays a really major role in providing a lot of the funding, um, a lot of the mobilization uh, for U.S. disaster assistance operations, um, carrying out a lot of them, uh, in some cases sending uh, its personnel um, to these places uh, to, to work um, with both local and U.S. government officials. Um, so its, its role is really central in ways that I talk about in the book. Um, after World War II, uh, this situation changes a bit. The U.S. government starts to partner with a lot of other uh, non-governmental organizations, so both faith-based and secular organizations, um, groups like uh, Catholic Relief Services, Church World Service, uh, CARE, um, all of them become increasingly prominent in U.S. foreign disaster aid as well. Um, these organizations are non-governmental, but like the Red Cross, they establish these connections with the U.S. government. Um, there's a committee that is created that these organizations have to apply to, and if they're accepted, uh, they get access to things like surplus agricultural commodities, uh, they get access to free shipping um, of humanitarian supplies thanks to their congressional funding patterns. Um, so they benefit quite a lot from the kind of relationship that they form with the U.S. government. Uh, and the U.S. government in turn benefits from having these, these organizations that um, are you know, in communication with it, that are kind of uh, carrying out uh, activities that serve U.S. interests. Uh, and so I talk a lot in the book about the, the relationship between these, you know, uh, state and sensibly non-state actors um, and really make the argument that they're a lot more related than we, than we often think. Uh, they're, they're, their relationship is, is not, you know, state and non-state as these two separate entities, uh, but they actually work very closely together to carry out U.S. foreign assistance operations. What implications does the book suggest for policymakers and diplomats who want to enhance the efficacy of foreign disaster assistance? If you haven't addressed this already. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that I, I want to the, the book really stops in the 1970s. So it's been 50 years or give or take uh, since, you know, uh, you know, since the, the last sort of scene in the book. Um, and I don't think. You know, the, the world in 2023 is very different from the world in the mid-70s, um, so we can't sort of make these direct parallels. Um, but I would like to hope that, that a policymaker or an aid worker, you know, kind of reading this book and thinking about this history um, 
would see both the, the good and the bad um, as, as you know, the, the warts and all uh, version of this history, right? There, there are moments where, again, there are people who are acting with, with good intentions and then doing good and then taking into account the, the perspectives and the needs of, of um, disaster um, survivors. Um, but there are a lot of others who are, um, who are, who are racist or nationalistic or have cultural chauvinism or who kind of judge people on the basis of class um, who don't listen to the needs, the desires of the people they're supposed to be helping. Um, so I think kind of reading these examples um, and hopefully sort of, you know, learning from the, the you know, the, learning from the, you know, taking the good ones as models and then perhaps leaving behind some of the less savory examples um, would, would be good for foreign aid more generally. So I think that's what I hope is that by reading this history and kind of thinking about both the positive and the negative aspects of this history um, can hopefully inform the ways that people think about foreign disaster aid today. How might the historical analysis and catastrophic diplomacy inform our understanding of current global challenges? Um, so, you know, as I said, it's it's um, it's a different world fifty years later, especially as as we we um, deal with the the major effects of, of climate change. Um, in, in the 21st century. Um, however, I think some of the, you know, some of the lessons remain salient, right? You know, how do you, how do you ensure that aid is, you know, as apolitical as possible, right? That you're kind of not, that you're providing aid out of authentic humanitarian motivations more so than political ones, I think is an important one. Um, whether we're talking about the 20th or the 21st century, um, uh, that would, I hope would, would kind of shape, um, shape the ways that people think about you know, aid and its, and its use in the world. Looking ahead, what do you see as a potential trend or challenge that the U.S. Uh, might face when it comes to their disaster assistance? Well, um, I, I think uh, it, throughout the 20th century and certainly today, there's, there's um, ongoing efforts to ensure that, you know, uh, humanitarian assistance. You know, humanitarian assistance is such a minuscule part, relatively speaking, of the U.S. federal budget. There's always, um, always sort of pushes for more, uh, for more aid, more support, uh, more, you know, more congressional funding. Um, and I think that, you know, that is going to continue to to be a reality, uh, especially, you know, uh, certainly some politicians are calling for uh, shrinking the State Department and shrinking foreign assistance agencies and budgets, um, and that's going to make it all the more challenging for people to try to conduct good and meaningful and, and um, effective humanitarian work in the world. Um, so I think that that's, you know, f- um, the sort of debates over, you know, ha- you know, how much federal funding is there for these, uh, for these efforts are going to be important. Um, you know, I think uh, thinking about the ways that the United States government uh, is involved with the international community and international organizations is also going to be, uh, an important trend. Uh, certainly, there's, there's, um, you know, we've seen a lot of back and forth in recent years. I think between those who want the United States to play a more international role, to to be involved in multinational organizations and and um, you know, cooperative sort of movements, uh, and those who want to focus on the United States first, right? Who who want to focus on national problems, who want to uh, take a more unilateral approach to foreign affairs. 
Um, I think if this book teaches us anything, it's that you know the the importance of, of working at a more multi uh, you know, multinational kind of cooperative level. Um, things like rising you know uh, climate change, rising seas, uh, destructive storms, um, flooding. These don't just affect a single nation. Um, you know, natural hazards don't care about national borders. Uh, so it's really imperative, I think, to take a global approach to to these problems rather than simply trying to take a, a national one if possible. What have you got planned for your future? And do you have any final thoughts for the New Books Network audience? Um, well, so I am now writing a book. Um, I'm writing a short history of international humanitarianism. Um, so it's going to be a, a very short uh, sort of overview. So I'm doing a uh, moving beyond just U.S. foreign disaster aid and really looking at international humanitarianism as a more global story. So that's what I'm working on at the moment. Um, not entirely sure what the, the next um, monograph project is going to be. I'm kind of uh, experimenting with different things, but certainly it will involve uh, humanitarian aid and disasters in some ways. Uh, otherwise, I, as I mentioned earlier, I just moved to Louisiana State University, so I just finished my first semester here, um, and it's been absolutely delightful, and so I'm really looking forward to uh, continuing to get to know students and then kind of um, teach classes here um, at LSU, so it's been it's been great, um, and certainly there's a lot of folks here who who think about um, disasters, the environment, uh, in in different ways. Uh, Louisiana is is not immune to a lot of the uh, the challenges that that I talk about in my book in terms of, of you know, hurricanes, obviously, but other other hazards. Uh, so kind of thinking about the the local impacts of some of the international stories I tell, I think will continue to be interesting to me uh, as both a scholar and a teacher uh, in in the years to come. Um, in terms of last things for, for the New Books Network, um, yeah, I just, you know, I, I guess my, my final thought is that, you know, studying this history is important, I think, to, to give us, um, to get us thinking about ways that we're going to deal with the environmental challenges, uh, the global environmental challenges of the 21st century. Uh, so, you know, hopefully the, the history and, and studying and reading about this history can help us think about how to have disaster aid that's less paternalistic, less politicized, um, more efficacious and more ethical uh, than it often was in the past. And I think that's that's my hope is that by studying this history, we can, uh, you know, we can we can learn from what didn't work out so well and figure out how to do it better um, for for the benefit of everybody. And that's the the hope with humanitarian history, I think. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Julia F. Irwin for discussing her new book, Catastrophic Diplomacy, U.S. Foreign Disaster Assistance in the American Century, from the University of North Carolina Press. Subscribe to get more episodes like this one from the New Books Network.